0: Welcome to the Eureka Moment. All right. My guest today is Greg Fairbrothers. And so uh, Greg, I guess, is my partner in crime here with this IBE thing. Uh, It would not have been possible without him. So uh, the Institute for Biomedical Entrepreneurship, uh, when I first started to put this thing together, um, I think Greg was one of my first calls because I figured at some point I need a curriculum and I figured he could be the guy that could help me to do that. And um, I found out a lot about, he had already had a lot of experience trying to do this type of thing before, but uh, Greg has had a really interesting path, a journey, and uh, I'm excited about him sharing a little bit. So we'll see how much he shares today. Uh, this is the, He's usually on the side of interviewing, not being the one interviewed. So uh, Greg, welcome. Thank you, Curtis. So maybe you can uh, start us out and tell us a little bit about where you're from. I always like to give people a little perspective where people are from in this country of ours. And yeah, you learn from a here. lot knowing where they grew up. Yeah, where yeah. you grew up. And so tell grew, us a little bit about that. So I
1: grew up in uh, central New Jersey. Uh, my dad was a professor at Rutgers University. So we started out life in New Brunswick in an army barracks and, and in the suburbs and then out in the farm, what then was farm country in central Jersey, right outside the I-287 loop. And uh, the course of course, growing up, they built that highway and, suburbia exploded. And now that's like corporate headquarters USA. So I went to high school there and then went off
0: school. So, um, as you're growing up, um, what were, what were the types of things you liked to do growing up? Were you in uh, athletics? Uh, what, what kind of things did you do?
1: Yeah, we did a lot of everything. Um, you know, we, uh, we were younger, we played on the bulldozers that built that highway. And so, uh, we'd sit there watching a neighbor, Harrow a field with a mule and a bed, you know, a box spring. And um, at the same time, we'd hitchhike down to town and take the bus into Port Authority and go to the concerts and rock concerts. And, you know, the drinking age was 18 and nobody carted us, So we were 14-year-olds going to Steak and Brew and <laughs> getting a couple of beers and going to the concerts. And so, you know, did a little everything. I did some sports. I did some theater, did stage lighting, at college
0: newspaper. I don't remember what all was, you know, a little bit of partying, you know. Well, what always fascinates me about you is that the broad spectrum of things that you've taken on and done. um, I think it's shaped not only you, but uh, it's helped you to shape a lot of other people that you've been able to come in contact with, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, So now you're going off to college. How did you make that choice? So, Yeah.
1: Um, I'd like to say this was a well-thought-out plan, but this was just before the period when college was like consumed kids in their younger days. And uh, so my dad thought, you know, he definitely wanted me to get a good education. He'd gotten a PhD on the GI Bill. and So he took me around to all these schools and i just go along with it. And, you know, we'd go look at them and I just wanted to go someplace where it was cool because I thought New Jersey was too hot in the summer and didn't like the hay fever and um one of the places we went to was uh Hanover, New Hampshire, and we got out of the car. I had no idea where I was. I got out and I looked around. There were all these pretty white buildings and thought, this is a nice place, maybe I'll go here. Uh I knew virtually nothing about Dartmouth, but we looked it up, I applied, applied early decision, which meant I'm getting I'm going if I get in. And I got
0: in and so I went to Dartmouth. So uh, it, it wasn't like this long No, you know, basically no showed up and okay now what (laughs) see you get to Dartmouth and um, what was the what was the the, I know I've heard this story but for those who have not um, what was the idea as far as education what kind of path were you deciding as far as what classes and what you wanted to do with that four years well you know liberal arts
1: I'm a big fan of liberal arts education it's Try a little of a lot of things, learn a lot about a lot of things, learn how to think, learn how to reason, learn how to write. Um, and as opposed to slotting right at the beginning, expose yourself to a lot of things and learn how to generalize, how to apply knowledge from one area to another area. So um, liberal arts is good for me because I went in there, I don't remember, I think I started as a physics math major, um, but I also really wanted to do film and theater because I thought that was a lot of fun. I was into literature. didn't think much of languages. I didn't really like languages. But um, I, uh, it turned out I did a bunch of advanced placement. And I did not even have the sophistication to understand that they had advanced placed me more in physics than in math. And within two semesters, I was really struggling in physics because I did not have the math tools. And I'm not sure I even really understood that. I just thought, well, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Which... A school like Ivy League, Dartmouth, Ivy League, Princeton, or whatever, they teach you that pretty quickly, which is there are a lot of smart people out there, and you're probably not as smart as you think you are. So at the end of that, I think it was my first semester, I, as I started my second semester, I thought, you know, I um, I think I want to stay in the sciences. I like the sciences. I want, even if I do some theater, I want some kind of a fallback so I could get a good career. And um, I'd already pretty much made up my mind, you know, all I think I really want in life is so I just want a farm. And that's a nice area up there around Dartmouth. I thought there's two interstates just been built here. This is going to look a lot like where I grew up. And someday they'll land worth a lot of money around here. And so I'll just buy a farm here and I'll retire early. So it's got to go make a lot of money quick because farmers got to have money to be a farmer. You can't make money to be a farmer. So I thought, what can I do? I'd been reading a lot about Club of Rome and limits to growth, population bomb, polar, like all that stuff. And I so, thought, well, everything's going to be in short supply. So I should go into like natural resources, minerals or oil or something like that. I can make a lot of money. And um, so I'll major in earth sciences. It's a science. You can be outdoors. You can drink a lot of beer. This is, This seems like a good choice. And then just a year later, 74, the Yom Kippur War happens, the price of oil triples overnight, and I think, I'm a genius. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, and then, of course, uh, uh, the recession of 75 hit. That happened to be the year I graduated, and uh, there were no jobs, so I went to grad school and then actually did go into oil and gas.
0: So you, you go into oil and gas. Um, there were several companies that you went work with, uh, but you ended up running those companies, right? You you yeah. you progressed through that through a career in the oil and gas industry pretty quickly because you were. I mean, well, I know you didn't meet your timeline for retirement. Sounds, yeah, it sounds
1: straight line, but nothing in oil and gas is straight line. Of course, first of all, it's a stochastic business. I mean, you're subject to the probabilities of nature. Uh, if you're in upstream oil and gas, because you're looking for it, you find it sometimes. When they don't. So I started at um, Texaco in New Orleans. I left New Jersey, having never been, I went to grad school in New Jersey, never been south of the Mason-Dixon line, really. I moved to New Orleans in the space of three days in June, which was the, a shock in every, every dimension you can think of. I started a job at a big company. I was in the south in the middle of a steamy summer, and I was in New Orleans, which is like the you know its own culture uh, to itself. Uh, so I worked there three years, because this was the boom, the Iranian revolution happened during this. Price oil doubled again. And, uh, and I'm not thinking really smart. Back then, everybody was in such demand because the industry was exploding, kind of like coders would be today. You could get a job anywhere. So you, you really, was a geologist, you went and got a royalty in your, in your drilling. That's how you're going to make all your money quick. A lot, of, a lot of them did. So I went and uh, thought I would go to Denver where it actually snows, but it didn't work out. Uh, and the weekend that I was looking, I looked one weekend and I came back with an offer in Tulsa, Oklahoma from a little company there. So I went there and, um, did quite well drilling. Then the thing happened that I never did any research to find out, which is that all commodities are cyclical and the cycle turned. And in, by 1985, the industry was in a tailspin by 86, it was a disaster. And that lasted for probably eight or nine years. So I was one of those that was – about half the people in the industry were squeezed out during that time They're Just They because the industry was collapsing. I was one of them that was just lucky enough to get my foot caught in the door. I didn't get into the party, hadn't made quite enough to just get out like a lot of, a lot of them did and just retired and lived off their money. But I also did well enough that it didn't make sense to career change. So instead, I went into management, went and got an MBA at night, Company paid for it. That was great, and um, so I worked my again worked my way up pretty quickly in management because the company was growing. And ended up president of that company. Started um, three companies internationally. What year was that, Greg? When so which so, so the industry so, collapsed in '86. Okay, I was already a um, a vice president. Um, okay. I think I became president in. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. It might have been 91 that I became president of the big company, the home company. But in 1989, I'd started um, an international company, and uh, we opened subsidiaries in
0: Russia and Venezuela and
1: Canada, so we built those up over 10 years.
0: So in that industry, <coughs> is the recognition and the advancement really around the ability to find or is it managing the process what where is it that you excel in that industry and how did you do it so quickly um were there circumstances where people pulled you up um one of the things i always like to find out is it a path that you drove or is it that there were people along the way that identified you and said you know this is the guy because um it's really interesting a lot of people I know I've asked this before. They haven't really thought about that—whether somebody chose me to pull me, or did I d- drive the process? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Of course, it's some of both. Um,
1: I think there's a an interesting anecdote at the beginning of that story of that company that maybe illustrates what you're getting at. I don't know if I've told you the story. Um, when I interviewed for this job, remember my goal was like to be a millionaire at 30, retire at 35 have my farm and go live there and live a good <laughs> life. That was the, that was, that was my life plan. And so, and I didn't want to be in Tulsa. I, I mean, I didn't, I, you know, I'd never been to Oklahoma. When I went and interviewed for this job, I want to be in Denver. I'd already had a house picked out right by the Flatirons. And, um, I interviewed 13 companies up there. Not one worked out, uh, just so happened that weekend. And these guys in Tulsa were very interested in me. Cause one of the guys I'd worked with had gone there. And so, I wasn't at all interested in them. I wasn't interested in the guy that I was going to report to. But at lunch, I, I told my buddy who'd had me come, Hey, this is not really that interesting. He said, well, just after lunch, just meet the owner. So then I met Charles Schusterman after lunch. He came in, which was always his practice to interview anybody he wanted to hire. And, um, I didn't, I didn't want that job. I just I remember we just my memory of it is we argued over whether a small company can grow quickly without becoming bureaucratic because I was really sick and tired of a big bureaucratic company. Hmm. So I just argued with him. We just always an interesting argument. Um and what he remembers that he told me years later is he, he remembers that he asked me what was my long-term goal and I said my long-term goal is to be a millionaire at 30. I was I think 27. Um and retire at 35 and go to my farm in Vermont. And I I laughed. I said, did I say that? He said, yeah, yeah, you did. (laughs) And, uh, he said, and that's when I decided to hire you. And I said, wait, wait, I don't get that. I'm telling you, I gave you a flip answer and I'm going to leave you by the time I'm 35. Um, and that's a good thing. And he said, actually, I have always done really well with people who have a goal. They set a plan to get that goal. And it, They actually are carrying it out. And you checked all three of those boxes. I said, but that was a stupid goal. I mean, I was telling you I'm going to leave you. He said, that was was my problem. If you were good, it's my job to keep you. And if I couldn't keep you, shame on me. But those are the people I always do well with. And so in some sense, he he always kept an eye on me, even though I reported to somebody else. That guy eventually left the company um, involuntarily. And he had me. Take that position, uh, and eventually was president of that company for him. Um, and so along the way, I think he did a lot of grooming. He throw me into things with no preparation. We we learned by doing. I, I he when the when the oil industry crashed, he said, "Go buy some companies." We had money. We had we had paid off our debt. We had cash. Nobody had cash. He said, "Go buy companies." So in addition to running our drilling and exploration, where we also were going crazy because we had money. Um, I had to figure out how to buy companies, whether they were bankrupt. I learned, to, I learned to chase the public companies, the bankrupt companies, go to the bid programs, buy from the majors. Um, just had to learn it. Mm. And he always would start with try something little and get good at it and then just keep adding more. And I think that's probably a good
0: life strategy. <clears throat> well, that's what we're trying to do with the IPE, right? <laughs> yeah. But with anything, started, started you have a goal, and you sh-
1: have a plan to get there, yeah. and you actually stay focused on executing it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, so now you're running the company. Um, this is one that you sold. This is the last oil and gas company. You had?
1: No, 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 no. This, this, this is the precursor. Samson to- Schusterman owned those companies. Okay, right. I mean, I had equity interest in the company, but he owned them. And they didn't get sold. Canada got sold. I started Canada with me in a briefcase. Um, and we sold that. Well, I was gone by then. I, I retired in 99. Okay. I made my plan, kind of. I was 44. Um, my oldest was getting ready to go to high school, and I realized, well, I did not move now. Um, I was going to have to move a kid to high school until 64. I really wasn't interested in that. so. Mm. Uh, it's probably a little earlier financially than would have been opportune, but money can't buy you time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Money will never buy you another year. So um, Canada got sold, I think it was in 04. Okay. Uh, so that was sold in two pieces for $1.2 billion U.S. in 2004. Um, Russia was sold sometime, I think it was 2006, was sold into two public companies okay. uh, in Canada, um, in other words, they bought basically it was reverse um, IPO. You bought a shell and put your assets into it. Mm-hmm. So I think that was they ended up with a market value of about one point four billion Canadian. And then uh, Venezuela, we gave it back to the government because they, you know, they were nationalizing everything. Then Samson itself was sold. I think it was in two thousand and twelve. Okay, it was a big big private equity buy. I think it was seven. Seven point two billion. Okay, I think.
0: And that was KKR. That was KKR. Okay,
1: yeah, went bankrupt fifteen months later. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, he, they were good sellers. <laughs> so you're out of the oil and gas business now.
1: Yeah, I was out in ninety nine.
0: Okay, Vermont, never look back. You're in Vermont. Yeah. Okay, you got a farm. Just went the dream, living the dream. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's dangerous to meet your goals. Uh huh. It is isn't. it isn't, right? It took you down a different path. Well,
1: the problem is when you had oriented everything around that goal, and then you meet that goal. Now you're either aimless or you got to think about a new goal. So what did you do? Well, um, having learned so much about life and particular, one thing the oil and gas will really teach you, oil and gas, movies, and biotech or drug discovery, three, they're the only three businesses that are like this. They're 100% like this. You are completely a victim of fate. The odds govern your life. You take big risks and some work and some don't, and you do not have control over your risk. You only have so much. You can change the odds, but you cannot remove probability. So if you're sitting there at 44 and you're thinking, okay, I've got Number of years, 30, 40 more years, I got to do something with this. I should set a new goal. But now you actually set a goal with a little bit of rationality. And you start to think about practicalities. You about to think about all the things that could go wrong. You think about all the alternatives. You have the the issue of lost regret. The minute you choose one thing, you're looking <laughs> back at what you didn't do, and you're suddenly, and you're worried about is it going to work out? Because it worked out once, you don't want to fail the second time. So it gets a lot harder to think about
0: what should the goal be. So, but when you, when you left in that first day on the farm, when was this realization, when did this realization hit you that you needed to come up with a new goal now? When did that hit? Oh, it was before I left. So you were, you, you knew that this
1: was. I knew I would got it. I knew I'm going. It was like by 97, 98, I'm thinking I got a plan. I got to, I got to think about what I'm going to do with myself next.
0: Okay. So, you it, but you really embraced the, the, the dairy farm, right? You no, the dairy,
1: the dairy, we we dairied that farm from 83 when I bought it. Okay. Um, to 96. Okay. So, so you it was already shut down. When you moved there, you yeah. shut it down. And no, we shut it down before we moved. Okay. Before I was even sure I was going to move. I okay. I decided this was enough. Um, it had, I'd studied a lot of tax and agricultural tax, oil and gas tax. Good piece of advice. No tax law. Um, made a lot of money by the way we structured the um, purchase and the running of the dairy, but a dairy does not make money in New England. You got to really be big and and efficient and high tech to make any money in dairy. And I wasn't interested in putting that kind of investment into dairy. So I tried to figure out ways to make a small farm break even. I just want to break
0: even. Okay. So, now I'm not doing the dairy farm, which was the plan.
1: It, yeah, no, it wasn't. It was the plan was to just just be in to keep the farm active. Okay. Um, I you know farm the tax code, and um, and I I'd always wanted to be a farmer. I just thought it'd be interesting to be I I didn't really want to milk cows three sixty five twice a day, four a.m. and four p.m. But um, you know I d- did at times. I mean I I was in Tulsa for the entire time we ran that farm. I was running that farm by computer, but we tried a lot of stuff. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about farming and Mm -hmm. I found out what it was like to grow your own food. And I feel like if you do the numbers, everybody in my family, we produced enough food that we kind of paid for ourselves for our lives with what we did on the farm. And, you know, we learned how to crop. We learned how to maintain equipment. We take care of the buildings. We learned what it's really like.
0: And, they, and the kids get a great experience too, right? Yeah. they're part of it. They still they, talk
1: about milk out of the tank with the dipper. Yep. Don't yeah. Don't turn on the, the agitator and get get that cream at the top.
0: Yeah. yeah. So they learn a lot. Good values, right? Growing up on a farm. I know.
1: One would think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure it showed every yeah. time. But. Yeah.
0: We, we, we I mean, our kids have grown up um, not as yours have. I mean, we've got a, a small piece of property in a barn and, you know, lots of animals around. We didn't farm it. We just did. Lots yeah. of responsibilities. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. And it was good. You know, yeah. and somebody's got to take care of that. I remember my daughter, Maya, she was just a little thing and going out to the coop every day. You yeah. got to check the coop every day. Yeah, you got to know, make sure responsibility,
1: you know, yeah. where your food comes from. Yeah. yeah. You start to appreciate when you walk into a grocery store, what got done right. I still, to this day, go into a big supermarket and I just, I'm in awe. I can't, I just have never got past it. Knowing what it takes to, do what's in those shelves between the running of a business and the produce, production of food of that quality. I just, I just am amazed that it can that it can work as well as it does.
0: And, and the volume of food, right? Exactly. Just the just the sheer aisle quantity. after aisle,
1: the choices and all of it's you know maintains a high standard. I mean, people may complain about this sort of additive, but the having worked in Russia, I worked in Russia starting in 1989. I saw what deprivation looks like. And to this day, I still see our grocery store through the eyes of my early Russians who came here. They could not believe it. The first ones who came thought it was some kind of a fake. I had to take them to store after store until I showed them this is just the way it is.
0: Well, and you go a lot of places in the world. It still Still is. Even in Europe. Yep. It's not like it is here. When no. you go into one of our major grocery stores, yeah. just the uh, well, we we are we're across the street from Appleton Farms, and they have the CSA. So we do that. Where you know it's Saturday, Steph and I will go over and pick our own. Yep. You know, you just pick it. But yeah, that's the thing that amazes me when you go into the produce section of a grocery store. Yeah. When was the last a- time you ate an apple with a worm in it? Never, never. You there's, ever pick one off a tree that's yeah. growing naturally in my neighbor's front yard? There's doesn't a have a worm in it. of them with yeah, worms. Yeah. Everyone has it. When I yeah. was a kid, the trees, and every worms. year a corn had a worm in the top yeah, of it. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I yeah. totally agree, but it's it's. It, I think it's really been good for our kids, and it sounds honestly like your kids to have it grown up and experienced that. Yeah, so you, you now go, um, and you decide you're going to get involved at the at Dartmouth? Is no. That, is that I didn't decide happened? that. How did this happen? That tell was, me. That was
1: a to- almost an accident. So tell me how that happened. 97, 98, I'm thinking I'm going to go up there. I know I know myself at least well enough to know you do not plan to sit around and retire. You don't sit around and think you're going to read books. I don't golf. I'm just not into that kind of stuff. I'm not into a lot of recreation. I kind of like to build things, do things, be productive. And... Um, so I mean, got to find something to do. And the Upper Valley of New England is not a particularly booming economy. What am I going to do up there? So I hit it hard doing what I'd learned how to do in oil and gas was if you want to, if you want to score, you got to take a lot of shots on goal. So I started looking at every kind. I thought, am I going to build a business? Am I going to buy a business? Or am I going to create, or am I going to get a job? Well, I didn't want a job. So it's build or buy. So I looked at everything from crazy things like uh, this this map company, and there was a guy that did a wood turning company that made like toy uh, toy bats that you buy at the baseball parks <laughs> and stuff up in upstate Vermont. Um, I looked at the Catamount Brewery, which had just been built down in Windsor and was going bankrupt. Take that out of bankruptcy, um, and slowly learned the economy. I learned a ton about just looking to buy small businesses, how they're bought and sold. Um, and I probably had about 15 files open. And um, at the same time, one of my good friends, he'd been my lobbyist for uh, my Russia work in D.C., he came to me, and this is remember 99, is the height of the Internet boom. Everybody's doing something on the Internet. In 98, 99, he came to me and said, look, well, I think it was Duncan Hunter in California had come to him. He'd been an assistant secretary of defense with hmm. Les Aspen and John said, look the other guys in Congress they're saying we need a procurement engine that is like internet this is I don't know if you remember this was in the, the 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 days of the the um, reverse auctions and they were building these mega companies out of nothing and it was all frost. and he said you know we need to we, we can we can disintermediate the procurement agent in Government procurement. This is a $400 billion industry, okay, in buying what the government buys. And we pretty quickly started to realize, I did some homework. He had access to top people. I remember talking to Eleanor Spector, who had just run procurement for the Pentagon. She goes, us a great idea. We talked to a ton of people. We pretty quickly realized that small businesses are preferenced in some very um, uh, statutory ways in in, uh, procurement. And that we could automate that and we could basically guarantee small businesses that they could disintermediate a big company if they could just qualify for the procurement. Hmm. And so we built this, we started building this engine and that led me while I'm sitting there in Hanover um, to network and through a guy, the the guy that was the rector at our church was a Dartmouth alum, introduced me to a Tuck professor who was also interested in doing something on the internet and had some ties at Arthur Anderson, Accenture Consulting. And um, so I started networking with him. The same time I worked with a, West, a workout specialist, Terry Dorman, who would worked on the, the Penn Central bankruptcy with a master of that. And so he was doing workouts, just kind of a Vermont rat because he was just kind of retired. And he got me into looking at all the building supply in the Upper Valley from Norwich up to Littleton buying two different things. One that was a kind of a a, a interested seller for family matters and one who was in bankruptcy. And Terry had been called in to work it out. So I'd always liked hardware. It's a hardware is fun. This would be a great acquisition. We got Ace Hardware involved. They were going to finance the whole thing. So notice there's two threads working now. This is, and there were several others behind, but I was running a horse race. Who's going to win and get my attention? And I'm, Thinking, I'm going to do this deal. The phenomenal, it would have been financially, would have been a phenomenal deal to buy the all that building supply and hardware. Um, and uh, I'm sitting in my living room one afternoon with this guy from Tuck, and we're working on this um, government thing. And I'm saying, to, I said to Dave. You, you, the Dartmouth asset, he had gotten us to all of these people who would take our calls, really well-placed people that we needed to help us with this thing. They were all taking our calls. And I'm a Dartmouth guy, so they, you know, the alums, they all take care of each other. I said, Dave, why isn't anybody using this asset more intelligently? I mean, you guys need to be building companies out of all the research that's going on at Dartmouth, don't you understand what you should be doing? He said, yeah, we've been talking about it. They want to do a venture fund, you know, and nobody really wants to do it. I said, no, oh, this is what you do. And I drew it on the, literally on the back of a co-op grocery bag. I said, this is how you <laughs> diagram this thing. And, and he thinks, can I have that? And I, yeah, whatever, take it. And about a week later, he called and said, can you come have lunch with uh, Dean Danos up at Tuck? We'd like to talk about this. And so we just kind of made this up that, Dartmouth should get serious about fostering entrepreneurship, fostering commercialization. And this is at a time when the socialists kind of owned the agenda. And you didn't talk about stuff like this in a university environment. Um, the president had tried it a year before, and it got his head handed to him on both sides. The venture guy said he didn't know what he was doing, and the faculty said, this is this is capitalism, crony capitalism. This is no business in education. But they still wanted to do it. So we thought a long time about it, probably, I don't know, three, four months. This is the way we should really think about this. And um, really emphasize the education piece, because this is an institution. I've, I felt strongly about this at the time. This is an educational institution. We're really here to shape people and our students and send them out into the world. Research, mm-hmm. secondary. That's Dartmouth focuses on its student. Um, but there is a lot of good research. But I don't understand why those are mutually exclusive, that if you're – developing good ideas and exposing students to this and helping students with their ideas. This all the same thing of learning to be entrepreneurial and there's going to be some good come out of it. So there's several things that were part of our program, a little bit different. One of them was we loved bad ideas because if people would learn, it was always first about people should learn. Uh, So this is great. We should do this. And Lewis Duncan, the Thayer Dean actually had a little bit of money. He'd just gotten in some indirects and research. He said, I'll put that money toward this. It'll pay the, the startup costs. And I said, look, we'll build an incubator. We'll build a building. The building, the rent from the building will pay for the program. The government, we can get the government to pay for the building. That's what we'll do. They said, great. They said, who's going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> they said, would you do this? They said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll help you start it. I'm actually working on this other deal. I'll help you start it. Funny story. Um. They kept saying, "Great, so we're going to call this a pilot project to get it approved." I said, "Well, that's fine, but I, I'm trying to do this acquisition, and and I I'm I'm not I I do like this idea," and my thought was, "I love students, I love young people. I I've shaped entrepreneurs for a long time already at the, at Samson, so I already knew how to do that. Uh, I was kind of excited about that. My mother always wanted me to be a professor, which is of course the last thing I wanted to do, but." I thought it'd be fun to be in an academic environment, but I'm not going to give up this acquisition for a pilot project, and then six months later they kill it because that's what you would do in industry, right? And they kept saying, "No, no, no, just fine, just just do do the pilot project." So how did you
0: achieve success when the president year before had gotten his head handed to him? What did you guys do differently other than call it a pilot? Is that it? No, 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 no. We turned the, the whole
1: reason of what we're doing and why we're doing on its head. It was not about making a lot of money. It was not about having the college invest in these companies. It was about generating ideas, working with the research, and most of all, teaching, so that it made it politically palatable to all but the most extreme of the anti-business people.
0: But you're talking about building a building, an incubator. No, that
1: was – but that was not with college money. Okay. It was with government money. So
0: that wasn't part of this dialogue.
1: No, the Department of Commerce, the EDA – um, Economic Development Administration was that this was a big program for them. They put up $300 million a year into these things because they really believe that universities should be clusters of innovation. Mm. Remember, this is 20 years ago. <clears throat> so um, they, we were kind of at an impasse. They're saying, do the pilot project. And I'm saying, I'm not going to do a pilot project. And um, everybody else is saying, how is this getting improved so quickly? This is amazing. How are you getting this done? And they said, well, we want to think about it some more. I said, look, you either decide or you don't. And they said, all right, we'll decide, but it's got to be a pilot project. So I called a friend of mine, actually Roman Holowinsky's professor, Rod Sharp, yeah. was my dad's first PhD student. He'd been a dean of research at Rutgers, and he'd also been a biotech entrepreneur. It's the first DNA plant technology, really the first biotech company. And so I called Rod. I said, Rod, I told him the story. I said, they're telling me pilot project. And I'm really worried about this pilot, but what about the pilot project? And he laughed and he said, Greg, do the pilot project. And he said, What? What? And he said, This is academia. They will never kill it. <laughs> and so it's, it's funny in one sense because it's true. But what I really learned there that never, never ceased to be a major factor every day at Dartmouth for that next 15 years was. There's the world of academia, and there's the world of and research, and there's the world of business. And these people, they look the same. They use the same words that were in the same dictionary, and they might as well be from Mars and from Venus. They say the same words, and they mean different things. The culture is different. Everything is different. And it's not just different. It's opposite. I used to tell my business people when you come in. Now you know how things work in academia is a little different. Like, I know, I know, I need to forget about business. I said, no, 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 no. You need to remember it and then do the opposite every day, and you'll be you'll be more right you're than still you're wrong.
0: You're teaching me that lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they think they think we that we I'm that joking. Discussion. We've had that discussion. Where you, I know I set off on yeah. a path, and I know you're thinking it's never. I just tell work. you, you
1: haven't reversed what you know. <laughs> you know, you do know how things work. It's just the opposite of the way you think. Yeah. Right. And and I learned at that moment and I filed that away as this is uh, this is going to I'm going to really need to pay attention here. Mm. And so my basically I fell into a role because, remember, I grew up in an academic household. I'd been trained in business for 23 years. I was bilingual. I was thoroughly bilingual. And so in a given day, I was the interpreter. More than anything else, I was the translator, helping people go from one world to the other in right. both directions, and more importantly, get them to work together.
0: So e- now you're you're sort of you know everybody's looking around the room and they point at you to say, "Why don't you?" Well, they try ask, to could I this? do it?"
1: I said, "Yeah, I'll do it for a little while. I get it set up, and then we you know if, then you can go find someone probably gets fine
0: to run it." So what happened to the other two projects now? Because you still had those two other projects going, and obviously you did. Uh, A few years at Dartmouth. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what happened? The internet thing
1: that died with the with the crash. Okay. Right. We had a we had a a, we had a term sheet from a group in San Diego. We had the programming lined up. Uh, It would have been a great it would have been a great idea. Some people have tried parts of it. They've never really done the full idea. I'm not sure why. But uh, and then the lumber thing, I just said, well, it's it's good, but it's just retail. I'm going to see so many good deals and meet so many bright people to build the teams with. I'm just going to sit back and just look at the deals for a few years. And when I see the right one,
0: I'll just do it. That was more than a few years, though.
1: Yeah, I know. It was just it was just more fun just doing that. I just saw hundreds and hundreds of deals. You know, I've been in a few. I've started several companies. Uh, I've helped or been part of many more. But, you know, I've invested in a couple, but I, I try to keep a pretty... Careful line between assets of the college and abuse of students, which have both been real, um, real third rails for people. And the, the people who are against too much business in the universities, they were right. And I think, I personally think things have gone too far in the other direction now. There's too much
0: business in I the
1: universities? I think that the business, first, the, the universities think they know too much about it and they don't. And the second is that because they don't, Some of the more unscrupulous among our population take advantage of that. And there have been any number of scandals at different universities and lawsuits over abusing student power over students, uh, lawsuits over conflicts of interest or worse. Um, There have been some huge fines um, assessed for commingling government research funds with private investment. Um, There have been an misappropriation of college intellectual property. By faculty entrepreneurs mm-hmm. it's just everything that every way you could think of for somebody to pull a fast one it happens in that environment because there are so few people watching
0: so what what is the right balance how do how do we strike a balance between educating at the university level <clears throat> and encouraging entrepreneurship which is the creation of businesses right yeah. how do you do that and and w- what's the what's the proper formula for that I think you got to, there
1: are a few things you can do with rules. Rules only go, take you so far. The rest of it, you got to try to rely on human nature. And that's a pretty shaky read to rely <laughs> on. So it, I think it's a really hard question. I think that, it, it, What you're always going to see is you're going to bounce between the two extremes. Eventually, institutions just say, whoa, wait a minute, this is out of control and then it overcorrects. Uh, but there's no question that, the kind of money that's invested in research in the American Academy is not getting anywhere near the return it should be for all the innovations that get created at the lab bench. The, the big gap, which is why we started IBE, is that that translation is not happening at the rate that it should. And as much as the NIH in particular tries to fix that and the NSF with their i plan – they, number one, they can't touch enough people. And number two, I'm not sure how effective they are a lot of the time.
0: But doesn't it have to change with the very um, <clears throat> idea of how we, what, what educations, what the, what the purpose of education is yeah. and how we, what, what <clears throat> the end product is, what's the metrics that we we're yeah. measuring, right? Defining a metric of success with regard to education that needs to change or adapt or evolve because it has never been. Um, I mean, I actually was scolded the other day. An academic institution said, we can't have a metric be the number of successful companies that the IB helps to start at this institution. That's not a metric that would be accepted here at the institution. We can't talk about it that way. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, first of all, you got to remember when you say the institution, the institution is not a little man sitting behind a curtain. It's a whole range of people with a whole range of opinions. So it's you've got to think about a distribution politically, as opposed to the institution. So there'll always be people that are just totally want to make a buck, and there would be totally people that just like to live off the system that pays them a good salary to do just their teaching and their research and have fun, Mm -hmm. and everything in between. And then there's the bureaucracy, and there's the faculty, and there's the administration. Uh, and then there's the trustees. I mean, very complex environment. Right. Okay, that's the first thing.
0: But doesn't it lean one way, Greg? Doesn't it really lean towards one model as opposed to?
1: it? They tend to swim together because everybody does what everybody else does. This is a very risk-averse population in general, mm-hmm. so there's safety in the herd. But I, I think first I want to go back to the, the the term you used and and want to think about this for a second because you said the metric for institutions – Metric is the measure. The, it's the measure of, are you achieving your goal?
0: Right.
1: And what is, I don't think, is nearly as well articulated as it should be today is what is our goal. If you get the goal right, then you can set a metric around it. Otherwise, you're creating operational definitions. Length is what my ruler measures, mm-hmm. right? And you may be overlooking things that are hard to measure. Like in my program, for years I said, most of these programs – that do entrepreneurship in institutions, they do one of two metrics because everybody asks, what's your metric? One metric is what I would call inputs. How many programs did they run? How many seminars did they do? How many right. guest speakers did they come? Blah, 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 blah. How many students enrolled? Inputs. Some of them focus strictly on outputs. How many companies did we create? I said, think about the, the, the law of unintended consequences with both of these metrics. If it's inputs, then what you have is bureaucratic bloke. You get get low-level people who just love to run programs. Bureaucrats love to run programs. And they don't care about the quality. Who knows what happens? It's just, but we did the programs, lots of activity. Or you can say, how many companies did I form? But then think what's going to happen is you're going to high grade to a few of the very best opportunities. And you're going to pour all your effort and all your resources into those few opportunities, most of which probably were good enough. They would have survived on their own, even if you never touched them. But you'll take credit for a lot of success. Now, we set out to say we want to touch our students, and we want to change the way they think, and we want them to leave more entrepreneurial than they can. Okay? Your cameraman, will remember this, because we used to talk about this years ago when he did a fraternity session, (laughs) we always let off with that employers will tell you that what they're looking for from students when they hire them is I want problem solvers, I want creative thinking, I want good communication skills, and I want people who can work on teams. Now, if you ask industry people, how good a job are institutions doing this?" 11 percent will say they're doing a good job. If you ask the provosts at the universities, 99 percent of us who are doing a great job, well they're not. They're creating box checkers that have been told how to follow a procedure and to play the system, to get into school. their entire lives they've been shaped to do this, and they come out ready to be told what to do and be cogs in the machine.
0: But I, from the little bit of work that we've done with academic institutions through the IBE, I'm hearing that there's a faction of deans that are saying no, we're not producing.
1: Yeah, you're dealing the with, outcome. but the, don't forget, you, you're dealing with a self-selected sample. You're dealing with the ones that'll talk. Yeah, because
0: I, I have the I have the other side too. Right, you know the other side of this. Yeah,
1: you'll trip into it, but you're you're finding most of the ones who do think that, and you're you're accidentally finding a few that don't. But believe me, there's uh,
0: well, I'm trying to nest, I'm trying to purposefully network with the people exactly. that do understand the vision That's what I mean. of where we're so going. So
1: you're getting right? a distorted view of the in, in, academic
0: environment. No, because I think I, I realize that I'm very fortunate to be finding the few people yeah. I mean, these we don't need to name all the institutions, but mm-hmm. they're very big institutions and we're not finding dozens of people, we're finding right. onesies, twosies. That's right. So it's not like, you know, these institutions that have seventy thousand students. And you're lucky if you can find one person that understands what we're talking about and is willing to do something about it.
1: The other thing you need to remember in institutions is that they, they seldom really say no. They just say yes and mean no. So <laughs> they will almost always agree with you. And you use the analogy of puppy dog all the time. Where the universities are full of puppy dogs, they're all full of enthusiasm and then go in the corner and go to sleep. Excellent. And nothing ever happens. Because for them, nothing does happen. There's never any consequences.
0: So, so that could, what is it that needs to change at the academic institution and what's going to be what's going to be the catalyst for that change? I mean we're trying to do our part, right? And we can have wild success and not even touch the problem, right? We could be wildly successful um, I don't know, we've talked about what the number, the right number is for the IBE, but let's assume it's a couple hundred people a year that we're teaching to be entrepreneurs <clears> who start to create <throat> a high volume of companies yeah. and successes. But that isn't going to change the academic institutions. Never, it would not even notice that it happened. So what does, how does that,
1: because, right? Well, education, what's the goal? Is, you know, to change for change's sake? No, of course not. But this is this is such a deep, Issue and you know we're all reading a lot about. It. I read a lot about, it, obviously, and talked to a lot of people. Academia is in a in a world of hurt, but it, it really does not want to admit it. It's it's got a good thing going, and it's going to be really hard to to knock it off of that. And there are a lot of people questioning. So, what really is the purpose of all this exercise and all this money we're pouring into it? But y- you and I are not really touching that big base of the academic world. No. We're at the research level, which is the slice just above that, that lives above that. And that's a that's another world that's, you know, it's got a lot of economic rent going on in it. There are a lot of people that are just making careers out of doing research to get another grant, to get another grant, right, and to just succeed in that. And there are people over at the granting agencies, their job is to give the grants. Their job, nobody's holding them accountable to really solve any problems. So I, I have no idea what will solve the problem. I decided we're going to just do what we can in our own backyard, And we're going to generate these activities and we're going to change the people. And back to your metrics, my root goal, and I told him from day one, is I want to change the people. Everyone who touches our program, and there were several hundred a year, I just want them to leave having tasted what it's like to really think entrepreneurially and be free to be creative and to help you make your own choices, help yourself set goals and make choices and be effective. And that means... Think about what your goals are. Set those goals, and think about some ways to get there. Um, and we did that by a quirk of fate. There was a you know the, there was a uh, uh, this uh, large collection of testimonials from people, faculty members, and students over uh, what they had experienced in the program, and it wasn't easy to measure. My my answer when they people would say to me, well, you you told us the two ways, two things we can measure aren't the right places to look. Well, what should we do? I said you gotta you gotta change the people. So well, how are we going to measure that? I said, well, ask them. Actually, have right. a relationship with your people. I know this is a, a, a you know an amazing thought, but why don't you get to really know them as opposed to just p- issuing out some questionnaire or giving a test?
0: I, I'm amazed, and we <clears throat> modeled much of the IB after what you did at Dartmouth. I mean, we've modeled quite a bit, right? We, we've made some changes adding the behavioral piece to it. But in large part, it is the model that you created and refined over those years at Dartmouth. Um, what I think is really interesting is you go back and talk to these students now that some of them, you know, we're third year anniversary this week, right? Yeah. Three years the anniversary of doing this. And these people, um, some of them were still in industry. They didn't leave. They didn't go start companies right? But um, I was talking to one of the young women, it was one of our very first class. And she said, I think entrepreneurially, I'm in a large op- organization that gives me the resources to do things I couldn't do if I had to just go do a startup. Yeah. It gives me the opportunity to to really develop a platform of products and do fluids, a lot of different products. But that, what I learned at the IBE was how to think differently, how to look at the problem differently, yeah. how to... To not look at it through the lens of a big corporation, but how do I solve problems from a standpoint of a small startup? And this asset is a startup. Five days, five days.
1: I wouldn't, I never believed we could do it in five days till we tried it. But yeah, it happens in five days. Yeah. It's just a shift in mindset. And entrepreneurship is not starting companies. Entrepreneurship is making, you know, making an an initiative, having an innovation. Um, getting something done with resources you don't control, you know, so you can do that
0: in a lot of places. You don't have to be in your own little startup to do this. No. And I, and I love your getting something done with resources you don't control. Yeah. I think that is, um, it really summarizes a, a lot of what these students leave with is that understanding of what that means and how to engage in that.
1: It, it's freeing because it gives you the autonomy to actually chase your objectives to think about what do I really want to
0: do and how am I going to get that done? So we're doing this IBE thing now. Um, Both of us don't know where it's going to go. It's seems to be going in the right direction, but we're a long way from what we envision it being and what it should be. Right. Um, What's the next chapter for you now? You've, you've started a bunch of companies. Yeah. Um, uh, I know in talking to you, you know, outside of this form, that you're trying to decide what you do next. Um, you're coming off of running yeah. a couple companies, so <laughs> what? And and what's that process for how you decide? Because you're, you know, you've got a lot more time and game now, right? Than when you made that decision sitting I in Vermont before. So, but <laughs> it doesn't seem like I have that time. I'm just as cr- crunched as ever.
1: I mean, I just have a couple of companies. I've got another nonprofit plus this one I'm putting time into. Um, have some activity going in Europe, but I'm a little, you know, a good entrepreneur is also opportunistic and you're looking for where's the opportunity as opposed to, you know, what, what resources do I have? Um, and if, if your, if your main goal is like a lot of people say, I just want to, I want to have, I want to make some impact. I want to do something that helps people. I hear this all the time. Had a long conversation with a guy yesterday. I just want to help people. It didn't inform his decisions a whole lot, but Mm. his heart's in the right place. But the good news was um, that we talked about, if that's what you want, there are a lot of ways you can do that. And you don't, and it it doesn't have to be some huge thing. It can be little things each day too. And so a good entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur, always is opportunistic about where can I have an impact today? And often the best impact is that, You've affected somebody else, and they go off and do it. You don't have to do anything.
0: Well, and you just answered the question, which I was going to say, the thing I would have probably asked that gentleman is, help them do what? I want to help them. Help them do (laughs) what? He didn't know. That's the. He didn't know. I mean, I, I, I always, you know, when I do the behavioral work or the IB, I always tell people, I want to leave you better than I found you. And yeah. I don't mean that we just had a nice little conversation that you get something from this experience that allows you to do what you want to do yep. better, Yep, better, not, not just that. While wow, I really thought that was fun conversation or that was interesting data that Kurt showed me, but that you leave with the ability to do what you do better. And what I, what I've added to that since having met you is that not only that you leave being able to do something better, but you learn how to teach someone meaning that it goes beyond because I, I like, and this is, again, I'm stealing, you know, uh, uh, Sam Walton never had a good idea that I didn't steal, um, a page from his book, um, that people that learn to teach something, develop a proficiency. They develop some level of mastery. If of you want to learn it, it, you got to teach it. You got to teach it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you just want to sit in there and listen and walk away from the IB, then, um, One of the beautiful things, and you were part of this today, right? We have a speaker, one of our best speakers who can't teach one of the sessions. And I propose that one of our very first students come back and teach that session. And she's going to be there. She's She's going to learn a lot about validation. Yeah. (laughs) And she's going to teach it, right? But I I just love the fact that somebody three years ago who struggled with the course, struggled with their project, struggled with presenting, struggled, struggled, struggled. Her project was one of the key projects at her. Company now, yep. it's one of the it's one of the key highlighted research projects, and she's coming back to be a teacher. Yep, and to hard. me, that's the metric of success. Yeah. yeah, that's a success.
1: Yep, you just don't know how much you're going to get it done a bit. because we, you know, there's, there is a yield per unit effort we have to think about. There, every year, especially in the springtime, I would be deluged with students wanting to come and talk about career choices. <clears throat> what am I going to do for my career? Where do I want to go? Because, you know, at Ivy League, it's consulting, banking, you know. And um, they, it's interesting how many of them, they, they come in with no idea, like how do I think about this question? Four years of college and never encountered something that really helped them connect all this knowledge that they'd picked up and all these skill sets they'd picked up to answer what was the most important question to them. What am I going to do with myself? And so there were two interesting things about this. One was they always wanted to talk about where they were going to start. They were always completely mystified when I would ask them, where do you want to end up? It would be a complete stumper when I would say, let's just imagine you're meeting me on the street 25 years from now. After we met today, 25 years later, we happen to run into the street. Tell me, and I just ask you how it's going. Tell me what your life is like. And they were like, I have no idea. That's a really good question. So that's the first thing. They thought about where they start, but never thought about where they want to be. I, I had no idea why, but I just wanted to be at a farm. But choose shoots I was right. That was an organizing principle. But the second key thing, I can't tell you how many times I literally saw someone reduced to tears when I just pick at them until I got them to really confront the issue that was bugging them, which wasn't what was my career going to be. A good therapist once told me, um, a, a, a patient seldom presents with the real problem. <laughs> so your first job is to figure out what's the real problem. And in this case, almost always the real problem was not, what am I going to do with my job? It's what I want to do with my life. And they would eventually blurt out, well, what I really want is I want my life to have meaning. They often would, I had, I had people break down and cry when they when they got themselves to say, that's what I really want. I want meaning.
0: But then we have to talk what about that means. what that is. They don't know what that means. But
1: they but they right. know that it exists. And so that's yeah. that's why I always finish with our little that little clip from uh, City Slickers. You know, that's for you to figure out. But the point was they had all the tools. They had been taught history, they had been taught knowledge, they've been taught how to think, how to research. But they needed to know what the target was. And the target wasn't get a good job. That was the tool. The target was what's going to be meaningful for me.
0: Well, I always start my session with them getting out the piece of paper and say, write down how you want to be remembered when you're dead. Yeah. Which is the ultimate ending, right? How,
1: what is... But is that meaning? Uh, I what if I don't want to be remembered when I'm dead?
0: There are people that say that, right? But it, does
1: that mean my life's meaningless?
0: No, it doesn't. But okay. I think... By asking the question,
1: it does make them think about, it makes them think, you know, what's life really about?
0: What's it about? Because they've never, you know, how many people have looked at me and said, this is really hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's supposed to be hard. And you're supposed to hopefully have put some thought into this already. Like what, at the end of it, what do I want to reflect back and say I accomplished? It isn't necessarily to have them give one sentence that defines that it's to get them to think about why they're in that room and what they want to get from this five days that they're going to experience. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I think a lot of them change what they're looking at by that question, right? Because what comes out of that? It's usually about people. It has nothing to do with money, things, possessions. It's always about a good father, a good husband, a good you know son, good daughter, somebody that people could rely on and trust. It's about the interaction of people and how those people remember them In that relationship but you know make them better i I want to help people i want to help people help people do what right um i'd like to see people have more balance right to be able to have more balance in that pursuit of whatever it is they choose to do right um you you put a lot of thought into balance right it was a lot of work but there was also that side to you of a lifestyle right i mean you're talking about your children and making that move before they went to high school. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a, putting your children to have a certain lifestyle. Um, I don't know that mirrored somewhat what you experienced growing up, right. In, in a rural environment where you learn good values and you put in a good day's work and you understand what that means and how to do that.
1: If you ask my kids and I, they've, I've actually heard this asked of them and their answer, what did your dad do for you? Or what did you like about how you were growing up? They'd say, "My dad let me make mistakes." I, I I had two two key ethics when I decided to have kids. One was, you raise your children to leave you. Your job is to make them self sufficient adults. Their job, your job is to let them make them leave, not make them leave you, but be that prepared to leave you, mm-hmm. and that needs to be their goal. And the second is they need to learn by doing, and that means they need to learn to be able to ha- make mistakes. And that was, that was always a source of friction because their mother was a classic helicopter parent who did not ever want anybody to make a mistake, anybody get hurt or anything like that. I it was, didn't kill them, and they made some pretty big ones over time. And they often say those are some of my most valuable life experiences.
0: Oh, that's um, and I always talk about this idea of resilience, teaching the kids to be resilient, and be able to work through adversity, because my dad... Used to say the cold, cruel world starts at the end of the driveway. Yeah, right. Yeah, and these Sometimes kids are going to have to—they're going to have to learn how to navigate. And a lot of kids aren't equipped to do that.
1: They're not. They're, they're taught everything. They taught the opposite. I don't know. Did you Did you ever read this book? I I don't know if I mentioned it. The The Coddling of the American Mind. No. I yeah. Never read that. This, uh, it's a It's uh, a recent book out um, about what's What's changed on college campuses in the last few years. And one of their key principles, they say, is that. Children are being taught today, anything that doesn't kill you makes you weaker. <laughs> you need to be pr- pr- protected from everything. Right. Trust your emotions. Your emotions are always right, and which is wrong. And um, there are good people and bad people. You better figure out how to tell the difference. And if you take those three principles and look at where we are today, I think it, thing, it makes perfect sense. It does. And none of those three principles are correct. Well, they start out with there's the, good and bad in yeah, everyone, it, right? There's, it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It the book just, starts
1: out with the guy says he's either going to go into the mountain to beat the guru to give him the meaning of life, and he says, "I'm going to tell you the meaning of life. It's these three principles, which of course are just the opposite of the meaning of life, right?" And then they proceed to show that's exactly the way
0: we're operating today. Yeah, no, it's it's unfortunate. So um, this is uh, this has been a great conversation, um, and I know you were reluctant to to do this, but uh, you, you gave, you gave, I feel like we got exactly what I was hoping to get with some insight from you and perspective and outlining it through the journey of your life to get you to be able to give some insight. And I think you will always do a great job. You're one of those most incredible teachers. You're just, you're just good at, it. you're good at, it. You're, good at it. you're good at teaching and you put a lot of thought into how to do Remember, it. Remember, we don't teach. We help people learn. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Thank Big you. difference yeah the teacher just talks at you It's true that's true because what you want them to do is go away and come back and tell you something that you want to send them. away
1: learning machines, yeah and they if come all they do is you, learn in the classroom you got five days. The real goal is to teach them into somebody who keeps on learning
0: well that's what i that's why I always think about I'm, what I'm trying to do is create a teacher mm-hmm. not a not a yep. student, yep, but uh you do it better than anyone. I've learned a tremendous amount from you and uh I, I feel privileged that you did this, A and B, that I get to spend five days with you. I am just thinking about this. This is our twelfth program. Okay. Is it really? It's our twelfth program. Okay. So, would have guessed. so think about it this way. Um, That's sixty days. Three months of my life with you every day. <laughs> every single day. Yeah. But uh no, but it's been it's been well, a great thanks for the opportunity. a great run and uh hopefully we have a a long way to go. yet. Yeah, so. the best is yet to come. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Take care.